Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. My first failure was, how old was I then? I was, I was at least 40. So I had a midlife crisis at 40, six years in, but I had had no failures up until then. No bad sets. I'd killed every time. And then that happened. And the moment that happened, I had doubt. And I think it's okay to have doubt. It makes you realize you're human. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Thank you all so much. As always, amazing. You guys are so supportive, so incredible. And I am just so incredibly grateful to you. It's much, much appreciated, all that you do, all the emails, all the texts, all the FedExes. Just so, so humbling. And I'm so glad that you like the show, and it means a lot. Thank you. And as always, I look at my guest, and I never know what I'm going to say. And this is no exception, because my guest is Kirk Fox, an incredible, incredible comedian and actor and client of mine who I love dearly, and I think the world of, and think the world of his comedy and his talent and his intellect it's hard sitting across from Kirk because he is such an incredible person to be next to. They always say that if you want to be a great tennis player, you got to play against the best. And coincidentally, Kirk Fox, world-class tennis player, but what I'm referring to is just being next to somebody who has an incredible wit, an incredible way about him, a guy who some of the greatest comedians in the world always love being around and some of the greatest actors in the world legendary love to be around him as well and some of the most iconic and most powerful television stars always want him to be around and i think to myself why do they want him to be around do they want him to be around because he's simply a guy who's funny 
Do they want him to be around because he's a guy who maybe is smart and witty? Do they want him around because he's a guy who's the most talented guy in the room on every occasion? I don't know what the answer is, but I will say this. There's something to be said for being that guy, the guy who it doesn't matter if it's a banker, a bum, a homeless guy, the biggest television or film star in the world, or anywhere in between, to have the ability to want people to have you in their life, to want you to be a part of their lives and the fabric of what they do, to want you to share the experience of the work that they take pride in. It's an amazing quality that Kirk Fox has, and he's always had it as long as I've known him. Always been a guy who the comedians respect, other actors respect, storytellers love, and just regular civilians. They find him to be engaging, charming, unique, and has a way about him that's incredibly original. And as long as I've known him, he's been that guy. You don't work with some of these people if you're not that guy. You could be the most talented guy or woman in the world, but if you don't know how to figure out how to navigate around these personalities, strong personalities, wherever you work, you're not going to get what you want and you're not going to get to the next level and you're not going to get more opportunities. People want to be around people that make them feel great, make them feel happy, make them feel like they're in the game, make them feel like they're witty and funny, but also know that they're sitting across from somebody who as at a higher level in many, many ways, but will never make them feel that way. And I think the answer is for most people in any situation you are, whatever profession you're in, that if you can be that person, if you can figure out how to be the person who takes the path of least resistance and creates these strong, wonderful relationships, that last the test of time, these people will go to the wall for you. They'll fight for you. They'll push for you. They'll make the call. They'll help you get to the next level because you were everything that they wanted at the time that they wanted you. And if you can figure out how to be that kind of person, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of life and the kind of respected career that Kirk Fox has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Uh, undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. I want to go way back. 
Go as far as you need, man. Let's go back to the San Diego area. Your mom, your dad, your brothers and sisters, what it was like, and what was the first inspiration to get into this crazy business? There was no inspiration to get into this business. I went to college, and I was going to play tennis, and... Then when I came to Hollywood after college, I was just teaching tennis. How did you get into tennis? Why tennis? Your dad wasn't playing tennis. Your brothers and sisters weren't playing tennis. I liked it. It was solitary. I saw a tennis racket and a a tennis ball, and there was a garage door next door. And I just started hitting the tennis ball against that garage door. I liked the sound it made. I liked the thump. I liked that I could do it by myself. I could always find a wall. And then uh, my mom would bake bread every Sunday. And I would take a loaf of bread down to the Pacific Beach Rec Center. There was a guy there named Dave Rath. Not the manager, but Dave Rath was a, a tennis pro down in San Diego. He had half a thumb. He had lost that thumb at a construction site when he was younger. But I would give him a loaf of bread every Sunday, and that got me a few tennis lessons during the week. He liked that home cooking. When someone wouldn't show up, I would get the tennis lesson. So I was playing tennis and baseball, soccer. I'm an athlete. When did you know you were better at tennis than the other kids? Well, I always knew that I was pretty good. I was tough to beat. So did you start having aspirations of thinking... I could parlay this into a scholarship at college. No, I was just uh, I was just having fun, man. My whole life has just been chasing girls and laughing and not working too hard. I could have worked harder at tennis. I didn't train very hard. I was just floating. So you don't get a scholarship to play tennis in college, or you do? Uh, there were there was offers, but I went to UC San Diego. Because my sister filled out the filled out the application because she had gone there. It was easy. I just took whatever was easy. Okay, so how do you get to the point where you start beating everybody in tennis? Obviously, I would beat most of them, but for some reason, I was clearly not beating who I should have been beating. I just did not have the work ethic. And there was some mental weakness. I didn't have the killer instinct. Probably didn't have a good enough backhand back then in between. But you were getting to the point where you saw that you were closing in on some worldwide rankings. Yeah, but once again, (laughs) it's tough, tough to win. It's got to be your whole life. And it was never my whole life. You got to train eight hours a day. You got to be, you got to spend a couple hundred grand out there traveling, playing these tournaments. It's not cheap. If you had to do it all over again, I could put you back right then, knowing what you know now, what would you do? The exact same thing. I had so much fun. There's no one has had a better life than I have. Were you the kind of guy who would be out all night trying to get a girl and you'd be late to the tennis tournament? No, I knew enough to show up. I was always responsible. I, I'd show up for when I have to work. When I have to work, I'm, I'm on time. So what was the straw that broke the camel's back? It was just a, a slow fade, a slow fade to black. I came to, I came to LA and just, I had my basket of tennis balls and I just started teaching tennis and blinked and 10 years went by. I didn't start stand up till 
deep in my 30s. But how did you get to that point where you wanted to act or do stand-up? I, st- I got to be honest with you. I'm still not at that point. But you have to step on a stage and there has to be inspiration to get there. Well, I, I, I'm enjoying... You mean what made me want to do stand-up comedy? The first time, yeah. Because there was nothing left. I needed something to do at night. My life hadn't begun yet. I was funny. I'd, I'd written that movie with Polly Shore. Uh, and I'd always, I'd been hanging around Polly for five years at the comedy store, but not doing stand-up. Maybe for 10 years I was friends with Polly. He'd go on the road, I'd go with him, I'd write, you know, I'd write jokes, I'd give him jokes and they'd get laughs. And eventually I was like, man, I should try this. So November 10th, 2002, I went on stage at the comedy store. How did it go? Well, it was three minutes and there was no laughs until the end when I said this was funny in front of the mirror. <laughs> and, then, and then they laughed and I was like, oh, I get it. But that was my first time on stage, November 10th, 2002. And the other night was number 3000. And my 3000th time, Kevin Hart brought me up at the comedy store last week. He popped in and did a half hour and then brought me up. And it was, I was okay with it. I mean, it was a seamless transition and they kept laughing and it's just jokes. I didn't, I didn't let it phase me. I mean, he's one of the biggest in the world. But once he was off that stage, then it was my turn and it's just a different chapter. When you're about to go on stage and they're just about to introduce you and then somebody says, hey, there's a special guest and he goes on. I know you're not a fearful person. I like to get to the comedy store and go on. The longer I wait, the more I I just get squirrely. The best part of the Kevin Hart was is when I went up, I guess when I was going up and my phone must have fallen out because then as I started talking, he's like, Kirk. And then he came up and he gave <laughs> me my phone back. And I was like, man, I can't believe, you know, and he's a pickpocket. <laughs> I mean, Kevin, is it that necessary? I mean, he's quick. He's small. He was, he's right at pocket level. <laughs> and I got a big laugh and he laughed. And then it was from that moment, it was fine. But you never know. Because you took the risk going after the Goliath. And just, it I was just open. I think the key to anything is just... You just want to be open. You take a risk. You call a African-American man a pickpocket. Well, I wasn't thinking that. I just thought, you know. And so you take the risk. You go toe-to-toe, and it works. I don't even think Kevin's an African-American. <laughs> He's just a man. I don't see color. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, but that was number 3,000, and I'm just getting comfy. So what am I, how many years in? 14? You know, when, when I was starting, all my peers were 15 years in. So I feel fine where I'm at. Was there a gig that you got before you did stand up that wasn't because of tennis? No. And it was funny. I, I'll tell you this, which is, which is a real funny story is I had never gotten to audition for a sitcom. But as soon as I started doing stand up, you know, I, I had some friends at UTA that were just kind of hip-pocketing me because I was teaching tennis to Peter Benedict and Jay Suris. So these guys were always, you know, taking care of me. 
because I fixed their tennis, but we're all friends. And there was an audition for this show called Rodney. That was Rodney Carrington. Yeah, and it was my first sitcom audition. And they're like, they're only looking at stand-ups. I'm like, tell them I'm a stand-up. And I think I'd been doing stand-up for a year, maybe. And I went in there, and I got it. I got, I got that job because they thought I was, a, they heard I was a stand-up. But I booked the job, and then he's like, hey, man, why don't you come out and open for me? And I'm like, okay. And I didn't realize who Rodney Carrington was. And for those of you who don't know, Rodney Carrington is just kind of an anomaly because there's parts of the South where he works and he can sell out theaters and... Arenas. It, w it went from... We jumped on his own. He, you know, he flies on his own jet, and he says, "Hey, you want to come open for me? We're doing a few gigs." I'm like, "Yeah." He's probably the most successful comedian that most people have never heard of as much as they should. But I went from open mics, like the night before, I did an open mic with ten people, and I loved open mics. I mean, I still, I just, I was having fun at the time, and then I went from ten people to four thousand the next night. And my jokes were still working, but I don't, maybe I'd only been doing it six months, but that was, but that was good. That was when that's, that was when I started stand up. So that was my first road gig was 4,000 people. One of my favorite lines that you ever said to me off stage, you got the gig opening up for Charlie Sheen when he was going through that difficult time. And... I called you up because somebody called me and said that you had a difficult time on a show and they sent a link to a theater show that you did. And I said, Kirk, man, this is a rough gig. It looks like you got booed off the stage. And you looked at me and you said, that is a complete falsehood. I got booed on stage. Off stage, everyone was very kind. <laughs> But I didn't even mind that because uh, I, I knew going in, it was, I told Charlie, I'm like, this could go either way. <laughs> but at one point there was 4,000 people booing and I knew the place held 5,000. And I said, come on, man, where's the other thousand? And then they all booed. But I, I still did my 20 minutes. So Ten minutes in, Charlie came out and gave me a Hershey's chocolate kiss. <laughs> he thought that might help, but it didn't help that they saw him. But he eventually got booed off as well. They were booing me before I even opened my mouth, so I, I didn't take it personally. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, 
we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. One, Six degrees of separation. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention the name of somebody, something I'm thinking of, and you can tell me one line, you can tell me whatever comes to your mind, a sentence, a story, whatever it is. Raya. Uh, it's air backwards. It's the first thing we take in when we're born. It's the last thing we let go of when we die. Well, when my dad was 65 years old, he was trudging in the deep sand, Mission Beach, which he did every morning with a bamboo stick. They called him Bamboo Ben. And as he was trudging with that bamboo stick in the deep sand, and he would, he would do it every morning. He got up every morning. He'd bundle up, knit hat. You could only see his eyes. But he was trudging in the deep sand, and his heart stopped. And with his last breath, he didn't know why, but he reached for the sky and he said, Raya. And his heart started beating again. And he just trudged on. And for the next 15 or 20 years, he would trudge every day with probably 100 people following him. And whenever he'd say, Raya, everyone would say, Raya. And anyone that would see my dad would greet him with a rousing Raya. So when he died, I just put Raya there. And it's usually under a watch band. But I haven't been wearing a watch lately. I don't need to know time. But that's Raya, air backwards. Eventually, I asked him what it was. I'm like, what's Raya? And he just says, it's air backwards. First thing we take in when we're born. Last thing we let go of when we die. Matt Dillon. Great director. City of Ghosts. Matt, uh, one of my best pals. I met him in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, he was doing a movie called Kansas. And I was playing in a, a professional tennis tournament in Lawrence, Kansas. A Challenger series. But we were staying at the same hotel, and we met, and we became friends. And I lost pretty quick after meeting him. But I stayed a few more days because there was a lot of girls in Lawrence, Kansas. But Matt and I, one of my best pals, still is. That was a long time ago. But City of Ghosts, he put me in. Caitlin Olson. I just don't know. She's, she's got a twin. I can tell you... Uh, <laughs> I hope she finds her way. She seems uh, she seems happy. Michael Keaton, sweetheart, R real nice. I did the post grad with him, and uh, he's just great. Every time I see him, he's kind, and he was a great comedian, and just kind of got tired of it. Once he hit, he never went back. Staying in town versus the road. I don't like flying too much. I'm pretty tall. Unless I can fly first class. When I was doing the test, I could fly first class. And I, I think the road would have been great if I'd started stand-up in my 20s. But 
the road in your 40s is shit unless you're doing theaters or arenas. Russell Brand. I like him. Quick brain. Uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall. But uh, I like him. James Kahn. Man, there's a lot of stories about James Kahn, but he was in the City of Ghosts. I mean, these guys are all very cool. Created a ch child. He's created life. John Oliver. Man, he's good. Great guy. Funny, smart, always kind to me. Kevin Costner. Athlete. Cool. Always nice. I remember when I got uh, the postman. He told me when I was, I ran into him at Witsit and he was hitting golf balls. And then he had told me that he had a part for me in the postman. I had met him on Wyatt Earp because I was teaching tennis to Lawrence Kasdan. So I did Wyatt Earp with Kevin. But I wasn't guaranteed to get the postman. But he told me at Witsit that I was going to be in the postman. And then I hit a bucket of golf balls, and I'd never hit the balls further. I'd added... Tw I added 20 yards to my drive just knowing I had work coming. I used to love those movies because I'd work three months and I'd have one line. My joke was in The Postman, I played a giant stamp. <laughs> and I let Kevin lick me for three months. <laughs> Clint Eastwood. Well, I, I like to think that he's my father. <laughs> I mean, I married Allison Eastwood because I loved Clint so much. But... uh how long were you married to Allison? Well, I like to say three movies. <laughs> but I'm married. Don't marry anyone because their father is your favorite actor. But there's a lot of I always remember is like the last thing Clint said to me was like, you son of a bitch. And I was like, you called me son. <laughs> That's all I ever wanted. But we were golfing one. You know, we, we golfed and. He said, you know, if you really wanted to golf with me this bad, all you had to do is ask. <laughs> you didn't need to marry. He said lamb chop. But Clint was nice. I loved Clint. I'd always liked him, even growing up. So it was nice when I could make my dreams come true. <laughs> Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil, man. My biggest fan. He would do anything for me. I'll do anything for him. Makes me laugh. Smartest guy I know. Heath Ledger. All heart, athlete, twinkle. Must have been a little tortured. Jay Leno. Man, he can tell a joke. I love Jay, man. He he really uh, took a shine to me. He liked me. I think he was my first TV set. And then he brought me back again. You broke every rule in comedy. Well, because I didn't know any of the rules. I was I was such a rookie. You watch that first Tonight Show, the first joke, it's 47 seconds before he gets to the punchline. So he's already gone through 20% of his act with one joke. Then his next group of jokes is rapid fire. Every seven to eight seconds, there's a laugh. Then he turns around and makes reference to the guys. Well, it was Jay and Brian Williams, and I just said, Listen, I don't have a lot of time, but, you know, I want to sit with you guys. But, you know, it's the only set I've ever really posted. It's at KirkFox.com. 
Amy Poehler. Man, the best. She's uh, kind, smart, funny, quick, and uh, she liked me. She kept bringing me back for Sewage Joe. Mel Gibson. Man, my favorite. We uh, we met when he was doing uh, Tequila Sunrise with Isai Morales, and I give I gave Mel a tennis lesson, and then we went and had uh, a hamburger at Johnny Rockets, and he had a '63 Blue T-Bird, and I remember when he was staying on Sunset Boulevard, and as we were driving, a woman was crossing the street, and we stopped for her. And it, I looked, and it was Mitzi Shore. This was 10 years before I did comedy, but she knew I knew Polly. And I remember she looked at me and then looked at Mel Gibson, and it was a real... She always called me cowboy. That was what she said to me. She always said, there's no one doing what you're doing. So whatever I was doing, it seemed to resonate with her. She said it never felt like jokes, and yet they were all jokes, you know. The late Gary Shandling. Man, my favorite, all heart, smartest guy in the room, tortured. At the top of all my sets, I, I write the word open because that's what he wrote on all his sets. And open to him meant you have to be vulnerable, inviting, and present and if he, he knew if he was open he would do okay his friends would always remind him be open and then it would relax him but uh i love them i was i was going to get his uh his porsche but i just couldn't pull the trigger it, it didn't fit in the driveway jaron has a very steep driveway jaron your wife my 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 new wife i have been told Jeez. She has a steep driveway, so I couldn't get the 911 because it would bottom out. But Miss Gary, I mean, that was crazy. Your proudest moment in show business. I'm just, I, I'm proud to be a part of it. I'm proud to, I look at the whole thing. I look at everyone I meet, every moment. I'm just proud to be a part of it. I think I, I think, I think I have some real moments coming up because I'm just getting comfortable. And I think until you're truly comfortable and genuine and authentic and able to take a deep breath and be okay with silence, then you can find those moments. I like Anthony Hopkins. He said uh, the greatest thing he learned, if he could tell his younger self anything, it would be, you know, lighten the f*** up. So I'm just trying to lighten the f*** up. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. I had a real rough, a real rough set in 2008 on stage where it may have been a, a complete anxiety or a panic attack, but where I froze and couldn't speak three minutes in to a set of comedy. And that that changed a lot for me. That was my first failure in life. Up until that moment, I'd never had a failure. 
it, the night had started at the improv and it was a showcase for uh, Letterman. And for some reason, things were just starting to come to a head or just something in my mind, but I just wasn't liking who I was on stage. I just, I was starting to feel like a character. I'd had a shitload of success, but I never felt like I was just who I was. I just was never happy. And so that night at the improv, someone came up to me and someone said, oh man, I love that character you're doing. And that kind of started my head spinning. And I went up on stage and I didn't tell a joke, but I got a lot of laughs. But then Eddie Brill was like, listen, you got to come back and at least do some jokes. Eddie Brill was booking the Letterman show at the time. And then after that, I called up to the comedy store because I had a spot up there. And uh, Tommy, who was the booker at the time, he says, oh, if, if you get up here right now, you, you can slide on. My spot, my spot was late, 1130. And he said, if you come up now, you get on at maybe 10. And you always want to go up when you can. But I knew I was, should have eaten. I always like to have food in me because I, I just need food. But I went right up to the comedy store. And by the time I got there, everyone had showed up. So then I had to wait. Tim Allen was there. And I had just, I was, I was up for a part in his movie. And they had just given it to someone else. It came down to me and another guy. But Tim was there. And he's like, oh, sorry it didn't work out. I'm like, that's all right. All good. And I, I just felt something was off as I was sitting back there waiting for my spot. And then uh, I saw Sebastian go up. Sebastian Maniscalco. And kill. And I was just like, man, he's just talking about real shit, man. I love, I just loved him. And I started thinking about my jokes and they were just jokes. And then finally I went up on stage and right as I started talking, someone in the front row went, ha, ha, ha. And it just kind of triggered something in me. And I started spending too much time with this guy. I'm like, are, are you, did I say something? Ha, ha, okay. So I started telling my jokes. And this guy kept doing that. And I eventually had him thrown out. And then I said something else. And then someone in the back said, you're projecting. And I was, it was the, the most precise heckle. And then the room just started spinning and I felt like I was going to pass out. And I said, Tommy, who's next? And what? And then something, you know, they frantically started to find the other comic. And they brought up Steve Renazizi, another comedian. And that whole thing took three minutes instead of a 15 minute set. And that moment, that was in 2008, September 11th, that changed me for a, a few, a couple of years. Cause I always knew that, I always thought that, I always knew it could happen again. So I had to figure out what was causing that much self-hate. And that, that was a, that was a big, that was a rough night but it, it made me who I am now. 
because it made me have to find out who Kirk Fox is. And for a while, I, I just blamed it on not eating. But it was much deeper. But my whole life, I mean, my first failure was shit, man. How old was I then? I was, I was at least 40. So I had a midlife crisis at 40. You know, do that. Six years in, but I had had no failures up until then. No bad sets. I'd killed every time. And then that happened. And the moment that happened, I had doubt. And I think it's okay to have doubt. It makes you realize you're human. It makes you feel. So, so that was it. I can pinpoint when I started realizing I had to change, become a better person. I'd been pretty selfish up till then. My whole life had only been about me. What advice would you have for the young person in comedy wants to be an actor, wants to be a comedian, doesn't even have any dreams of it, it just happens, and how do you get to the kind of point in their career where they can sort of have the kind of material that you have, the kind of respect you have? Trust that you're enough. Get on stage as much as you can. Hand the jokes off on a pillow. Don't shove them down an audience's throat. The mic will help you. Pretend like you're selling a 911 Porsche. You don't have to work too hard. You want to be able to just talk, I think. And then if you need to, you can add a little bit as long as it's who you are. And you'll save a lot of time if you come out of the gate being okay with silence. And remember, they've, they want to laugh. It's never the audience. You can find a different angle in. But just love the room. But love yourself first. Don't get on stage till you love yourself. It's not fair to them. And eat a burger. Eat a burger before you go on. That's all. Kirk Fox, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Barry. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. People love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.